All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, this is Dan Galvin with my little podcast, Genki Ideas. Um, this podcast, I got together with an old friend from Gustavus, Steve Stoff. Um, Steve was a really good guy I knew in school, and um, probably six months ago or so, I saw uh, when I was just kind of kicking around the idea about doing this podcast about recovery. Um, Steve had thrown out a, a Facebook post about uh, receiving his six-month sobriety medallion uh, through AA, and I just kind of, uh, you know, filed that in the back of my mind and remembered that when I started uh, thinking of ideas for a podcast or for this podcast and, and possible people to talk to about uh, the ideas in my head, and so... Um, you know, that was a little bit ago. I think he's actually, he says at the beginning, I think he's just passed like 13 months or something now. But, um, you know, I called him up and asked him if he was willing to talk. And he said, of course. So um, we sat down again. I have to apologize. I promise you this will be the last time I, hopefully, <laughs> uh, the last time until the next time maybe. But the last time I uh, talked to somebody in a coffee shop, uh, I tried to clean up the audio a little bit. Um, but there's just only so much buffering you can do when, when somebody's making a big cappuccino about six feet from your microphone. So I do apologize for that, but uh, got a few more guests lined up, and I promise that uh, we've, we're, we're finding more private locations to, uh, to have these conversations. So um, Steve's got a pretty interesting story, and, and uh, I hope you guys get something out of this. And please feel free to leave me any feedback or let me know what you think or any other uh, things that you think I should be looking for in, in talking to people and having these conversations that you guys can learn something from. So thanks very much and enjoy. So, all right, well, uh, here with my buddy Steve. Steve, thanks for taking the time to have coffee with me today. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't have any real agenda or anything, but I just, you know, have had all these thoughts swirling in my brain lately about addiction and what it means to be in recovery and what the benefits are compared to, uh, you know, just, I wouldn't say living in a fog, but the benefits of um, uh, kind of taking a load off every day or whatever, just not having to be totally on point all the time. So anyways, when you put out your... Facebook photo saying that you've been sober. It was like, well, I better check in with this guy and see what his story is. So um, maybe start, tell us a little bit about your background and go from there. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, was a little nervous coming into this. Not, uh, not sure what to say or talk about. I, I have spent a lot of time in meetings, in treatment. Uh, I have a family and friends kind of sharing my story and background. So I, I feel like I've got that part down and I'm fairly open. About it, um, I will tell you that you know there's a lot of insanity uh, that happens in the brain when you're in active uh, addiction. And my addiction was with alcohol, and and, uh, and I feel like a, a completely different person um, being sober for a year, being able to handle things mentally much more smoothly and calmly, and, and understanding that I'm not as in control as much as I used to think I was. Um, but it's been a, a tough year, uh, a long year, but I'm very grateful for what I've been given. Uh, it's allowed me to just be much more present and honest and uh, you know, a better 
husband, a better father, a better employee, all of those things, uh, and the amount of people that have been supportive has been incredible. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, how'd you, you said it was alcohol, but how'd you get into the game? Uh, you know, I grew up in a town of 700 people, uh, you know, four bars, four churches, and that's, uh, it was a way of life. Uh, everybody drank, you know, we started drinking in junior high through high school, uh, and that was normal, right? You get to college, and college is more partying, more drinking. I uh, played on a sports team that was heavy into partying, and uh, I never really thought that I had an issue with alcohol. I just thought, you know, this is, this is normal life, and this is what people do. Uh, and after college, those those things didn't really stop. Um, you know, from binge drinking multiple times a week to making sure you know, everything we do with friends, outings involves alcohol. And forever, just never thought that I had a problem. That was just something I wanted to do, something I enjoyed doing. And that was, that was a big part of me. I was a party guy. I was the funny guy, the, the life of the party type of thing, and, uh, and looking back, all of the arguments with my wife, all of our issues over the course of knowing each other now for 15 years, the majority of them get tied directly back to something involving booze, whether mm-hmm. she was drunk, I was drunk, it was around my drinking, uh, my drinking habits, and, you know, I was fish and thought I could control things, and you know, it should have been a red flag in college with a previous girlfriend who uh, we tried to set some boundaries around drinking and having drinks at night. Right? And, you know, get to the point of resenting that individual, like, you know, screw you. I'm going to do what I want. I'm in college. And, uh, I don't need someone telling me how to control my alcohol. Right. Uh, so were you thinking of it? You said you weren't thinking of it as a problem at that point, but, I mean, if... If somebody's trying to monitor your intake at that age, did, did the thoughts start percolating? For no, you I, honestly, they didn't. I, and even knowing that I've got uh, a family history of depression and alcoholism, it still didn't click with me. I thought the problem was with everybody else. Uh, this is me. This is my Take me as I am, whether you like it or not. I may be uh, a great guy sober, I may be an asshole drunk, but you're going to take the good of the bad. And that's just the way it is. And I, you know, historically, always thought that alcoholics or alcohol people that dealt with alcohol woke up in the morning and drank. Right? Those are the true alcoholics. Sure. Uh, so my definition in my head of the alcoholic was much different than what I understand today. But that to be, and that's just not the case. Even when I did my assessment before I went into treatment, I didn't necessarily think I was an alcoholic. I just knew something had to change, or I was going to potentially lose my marriage. Beyond that, you know, how much time am I going to actually be able to see with my kids? And that's really important. I do the assessment, and they, they told me that because of how much you're, you're sneaking around and hiding it, uh, we'd normally suggest inpatient treatment. I was just kind of blown away by that. Mm. Uh, but I opted and ended up doing an outpatient program, and about two sessions into outpatient, yeah, I really do have a problem with it. Mm. With alcohol, my life is unmanageable uh, because of alcohol. So, and even before that, you know, a couple of years before, you know, I would have these big blows with my wife, and then uh, we'd create some rules around drinking, you know, I'm only going to drink on the holidays, or I'm only going to drink two nights a week, and my minimum is going to be, or maximum is going to be 
two drinks or three drinks a night, no more than five in a weekend. And that would work for two months, three months, and my, and my brain would just go, this is dumb. I'm putting limitations on myself that I don't want, and now I'm losing my wife because of it, so I'm just going to kind of have to mode, and then something would happen again, and the cycle continues. The insanity in that thought process is, is the alcohol side. Not the stuff you do when you're drunk, it's the thought process leading up to when you're actually drinking. But yeah, it progressed uh, once uh, after the first kid, the second kid, and then finally the third kid. Uh, things just really spiraled in 2016 where it was five, six nights a week. Hmm. You know, push the kids to bed, be irritable, angry when they wouldn't go to bed. My wife teaches, so she's up early, goes to bed early, and that was be park launch, do what I wanted uh, after after eight nine o'clock at night, and that would lead to uh, some real insane behavior. You know, between nine and two in the morning, get four hours of sleep, wake up feeling crap, and let's do it again. So, kind of a bounce around with my history there, but it's alcohol's been a part of my life, a part of my family forever, and uh, it took thirty six years for me to understand that I truly have an issue. Was it, uh, how did you end up having the rehab talk? Was it your uh, idea, or was somebody like an ultimatum given, or was it more just like, hey, we got to do something different? I was traveling for business in Fargo. Uh, you know, had the FaceTime with the girls and the wife, and everyone went to bed. Uh, when I thought everyone was in bed, I could go gamble and drink, and then I came back to my room at, like, Three in the morning, uh, ended up uh, butt dialing my wife at that time. She obviously knew that I was really intoxicated and obviously lied about what I was doing. Uh, and that was the time where she basically said, You, you gotta do something different. Uh, she didn't give me an ultimatum at the time. I didn't even know what different meant. And we had talked about seeing a therapist or a couple for a long time, and I always put that off. So this is, we should be able to deal with this on our own. If we can't deal with it on our own, we shouldn't be together. Uh, and kind of off topic, I now am under the full belief that every human being should have a therapist, whether you're, whether you're an, an alcoholic or an addict or whatever. Um, and at that point, I knew our tone was different, something was different, and I knew that I couldn't go on. Uh, I didn't know what to do, so I called my uh, employee, employer assistance program. So here's the deal. I, I was still really drunk that morning. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I still had meetings that day with clients. And I said, I don't know what to do. Uh, and they, they got me in touch with a therapist in my in my hometown. Uh, met with her. Uh, met with her with my wife. And she's the one that suggested I take an alcohol assessment. And uh, again, up until that point, I was like, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I think it's a some other mental issue or whatever, I just, forever, just didn't think that that was the case, but that's what uh, the breaking point was, and it wasn't an ultimatum on me to do this, but I, I knew, I knew that if uh, I couldn't continue like this, if I was going to be a good husband, a good father, or even get to be uh, married anymore, uh, and that would obviously impact how often I see my kids and what kind of kids I get to be in their lives. Yeah, it was a scary time. How old are your girls? Uh, six, five, and one. Okay. 
yeah, that's pretty pretty heavy workload to be. Um, so, so you ended up going. Um, you did an outpatient program, right? Correct. And how long did that go on? Uh, well, I actually went for a year. Okay. Uh, most outpatient programs, and I went to Hazelden. I was very fortunate. Most outpatient programs are anywhere between four and six months, and you, you start, you know, three, four days a week, and then you kind of wean down as you, you learn to build tools and you incorporate recovery in your life, you know, therapy and um, exercise and all these other things. Uh, but our family's insurance was so good, and I got so much benefit from outpatient that I, for the last four months I ended up just continuing to go one day a week. And it was really good accountability and group accountability. Uh, it was a, the first place that I ever felt that I could be open and honest about who I was, what I'd gone through, how I was raised, all those things. That was the first time I truly felt vulnerable, and it actually felt good. And did you feel that... You said alcohol was just a major component in how you grew up, and I can understand that too. But do you feel like alcohol was a way for you to just cover up something that was, I mean, was it just habit, or was it something from your childhood, or something that you were trying to cover? Or it was numb? both. Yeah, it was both. I uh, had a uh, core belief for a long time that I was unwanted as a kid. I was born three days after my parents got married. And, you know, they were young. Um, my mom was 20, my dad was 23. You know, throw together a wedding three days before the kid's born. It's the Catholic thing to do. Sure. Forever and carried this kind of burden of when my parents got into arguments or fights, I was the reason why. Sure. Right? If I wasn't born, right. uh, they wouldn't be going. They were forced to be these grown-ups because right. you came along? Because I came along. So I just felt like this uh, big mistake. Um, I always try to compensate by proving my worth, uh, working really hard, uh, trying to be the best at everything I did, just to get the approval from my parents that I deserve to exist, as, as kind of weird as that sounds. Um, and even up until a couple of years ago, I still... And sometimes now, still seek my parents' approval uh, for things, just to, just out of, out of nature. But what happens is when you don't want to disappoint your parents and you don't want to make them mad, you get really good at uh, maneuvering the truth. Uh, really good at lying. Um, because I, I, well, I told them what they wanted to hear. Because I don't want to get in trouble, I don't want them to argue. Uh, and uh, you know we had corporal punishment in my house. I don't want to get spanked, but I got really good at, at uh, being deceitful too. On top of always feeling like I had something to prove, and that didn't translate just to my parents. I felt like I had something to prove to everybody. I just forever put this chip on my shoulder, and it's you know it's caused a lot of. I never really allowed anyone to get close to me because of that. So I developed a lot of service level relationships. And, uh, I didn't really let people even know who I was. And over the course of 30 years, you kind of, you don't know who you are. So, yeah, there's a lot dating back to my childhood. That I, would, I would say, and I, it's, you know, you grow up in that kind of small town environment. Like, 
You don't talk about feelings. You don't ask for help. You're mentally able. You should be mentally tough enough to get through everything. And I, I just wasn't. I just wasn't. So, uh, the fact that you know I didn't learn about my great grandfather committing suicide because he was an alcoholic until I was 33. Our family just keeps those things buried. That I have other family members that have been on antidepressant medication for years. We just never talk about it. You know, and now finally to be able to be open. And to actually go and get me uh, with a uh, psychologist and say, yeah, you probably should be on some sort of antidepressants to keep things even keel. Yeah. You know, historically, I never would have thought that that was something I would have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have felt very vulnerable and something I shouldn't do. There was something wrong with that. Did you feel concerned at all? about any kind of medication with your personality? Absolutely. Yeah, I, again, just thinking that I should be able to fix all these things by myself. I should be smart enough and mentally strong enough to, to do these things without medication. I, I look down upon people that took medication as like a cop on the way out. Uh, didn't understand the science behind it. Didn't care. It was, you have problems, you should be able to fix them. If you really want to fix them. Obviously, my mindset's changed completely from that going through this process. What did you learn uh, in the AA process? Are you, do you go to meetings now? I do, yep. So when you uh, engage in that, is there a lot of, uh, I mean, obviously it's a self-critical, self-analysis type situation, but when you first went to rehab, um, was there a lot of ahas, for lack of a better term, about like they, you know pointing out this is addictive behavior, this is addictive behavior, and oh. you start seeing all these things that you've done in your past? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, stuff that you thought was normal or made sense at the time, and that's what I kind of mentioned before about the true insanity of, of the disease. Um, you know, the one thing about AA meetings is. Those meetings are about experience, strength, hope, hearing other people's stories and how they overcome. Um, and it's just a good chance to get outside your own head and listen to other people and a good place to be honest and understand that you're not the only person that's gone through what you've gone through. That's the benefit I get out of continuing to go to meetings. Um, but in rehab, you're in, there's a, you know, I couldn't list all the aha moments of, wow, that's actually something you can do and you can think that way and it works if you do it over time uh, you know the aha moment of how insane it was to get the kids to bed get my wife to bed and then only put three beers in the basement fridge and say when those are gone I'm done for the night but have the garage door open just in case I wanted more than three and I go grab three more and then three more and then realize that geez my wife looks in the garage fridge and notices that there's 9 or 12 beers missing. I better run a liquor store in the morning, buy a 12-pack, refill the case, hide the 12-pack cardboard uh, to make sure that it's good. And the amount of mental energy and time for that insanity. Another aha moment is, geez, now that I'm okay being honest and okay dealing with the consequences of honesty uh, and knowing that there's only so much I can control, it's, you know, the whole idea of serenity is, well, I don't have to worry about what lies I have to cover up right. tomorrow. Right. I know it's a question about ahas, but there's, 
I mean, almost too many to name. Sure. Well, not even so much a question about ahas, but I guess part of my thinking was, you know, I think I told you a little bit about my background, but I mean, we we went to the same college, we stood next to each other in our fraternity line, and uh, you know, I was thinking about that, some things that went on there, and uh, you know. I basically just said when I was like 33, I'm going to stop drinking for a year. I'm going to give it a year just because I've been doing it, like you said, since junior high, basically. And it was like, if you drank for 20 years and you're 33 years old, maybe, you know, we know what our life is like with it. Let's give it a year off and see what it's like without it. And at the end of a year, you can always go back. So within a couple months, it was like just, I felt like epiphany after epiphany, just like, mental fireworks going off all the time. Like I wake up and feel great. I just the outlook for the future is so much brighter and I can focus so much more on all these long term goals and uh, just not so much about lying at that point because I mean there I, I wasn't like the monster drinker like going out and just getting obliterated. Uh, I mean, it happens sometimes, of course, there's weddings and, you know, whatever, but, like, for me, it was definitely more, you're having three, four beers every single night of the week, and, hey, we're having a barbecue, better grab some beers, we're walking up to the beach, better grab some beers, hey, we're going to a baseball game, definitely gonna have some beers, you know, it just, it, it was so permeated everything that, that when you stop doing it and see how pervasive alcohol is in everyday life, in our culture, it's like, you go to brunch, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and can I get you bloody? You need a mimosa? It's like, you know, I think I'm just going to not get shit-faced all day here. But, uh, you know, and so where I was going with that is it, it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that I wasn't going to start drinking again, and I never had any physical uh, draw to it or anything. It just, it was like a, something switched in my brain and said, you don't need to do that anymore. Excuse me, but... And I got a lot of people who were really kind of blown away with that. Just like, wait, you stopped doing that? You don't need to do that? Well, that's pretty pretty crazy. And then, uh, but I, you know, so where I was going with this story is just, you know, I kind of asked if there were ahas. And it wasn't until uh, a couple, you know, in the last six months, I was reading this book on, on the alcoholic mind. It was, you know, written by some doctor probably in the 80s or something. I hadn't drank for a few years, uh, but it started smoking pot again a lot, and really saw that the symptoms were the exact same. I mean, it was a different chemical, but the behavior was the exact same, the mindset was the exact same, the mental gymnastics you'd go through to justify certain behavior, and, um, and as you said, with doing that, kind of a lot of... I, w- I guess I was... I was what I think was this pot that was fairly evangelical about benefits of it with everyone basically except my wife. So it's not really the way to maintain a happy marriage and uh, I had to kind of get my act together. And it's going great, but uh, it was really just more focused on kind of the, the behavioral stuff where you see, what, you know, why would I think that this is a good way to operate? And it is a, a huge weight off the shoulders when you're like, I don't have to lie about anything. I don't have to lie about anything. I'm, you know, uh, that was the only thing I ever lied about. You know, I mean, 
to my wife. It's about me smoking pot. You know, I've never cheated on her. I've never done anything like that. I've never even thought about it. But it's like, and I'm an honest guy. I mean, in my business, that's all I have is my name. You know, there's nobody that can say anything bad about it. But that one little thing, and it just eats in your brain. So you find like, all right, how am I gonna, how am I gonna do this differently? But where I, I wanted to kind of go with you is now that you've had some success in this. Doesn't sound like physically it's a major issue for you or anything. You feel good. You're happy with your decision. How do you? Um, is there ever a feeling for you of just sort of like? Well, let me back up. I know that there's tons of mental benefits when you said you feel this serenity, you feel this peace. There's more calm. There's less peaks and valleys in your confidence levels as it relates to your business or your marriage or whatever. And I've noticed some of those same things too. But do you ever feel like you just have this sort of almost like mental boredom? Like you're, you're kind of like, well, what am I doing all this sobriety for? Not really, not, not doing the sobriety for, but like, uh, I think a lot of people, it's just easier for them to, Go to their job they don't love, come home and start drinking beers or smoking pot or whatever their drug of choice is, watch TV and go to bed. And when your mind is completely clear and you start waking up every day more like, what's this all about? What What's my purpose? What am I doing that's contributing? What am I doing that's helping other people? Do you have any of that like mental boredom where it's like... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know... I talked about the depression piece. Uh, I also was diagnosed with ADHD that I've never even addressed forever. So I have issues with impulse control, which is a big part of the alcoholic piece, anti depression, uh, having alcoholism in your, in your family, and then having some impulse control issues. Uh, my brain was never broken. It was always mine. Right. And I remember once uh, being on antidepressants and on medication and having it like I'm like wow this is how normal people actually feel this is awesome uh, when it comes to mental boredom um, I've truly you know this is a part of AA and I think a big misconception about AA being like a religious program mm-hmm. um, the majority of people I've met and treated came from like staunch religious backgrounds sure. that reject religion and have issues with authority because of that uh, and, uh, you know, the whole idea is you just have to be open to the idea of a power grid and yourself being able to help you. And that's different for everybody, right? Some people might be the doorknob, it might be the higher power. For me, what's, what's really worked is, you know, what is that image of a father that my three daughters deserve? Knowing that how I treat my wife, how I present time with them is really molding the ideal of a man that they may marry someday. Right. That was a power that's way greater than me. And now, I, when my brain gets bored and I start having thoughts of doing something destructive, I can pause and say, well, is that really reflecting what my kids need in a husband? Mm. The answer is no. Uh, that's a pretty powerful thought. And, and yeah, we all have messed up thoughts from time to time. Uh, but to be able to be able to actually recognize that, hit the pause button, uh, and think about what's your real purpose here. Uh, I get more joy out of doing things for them and for others now 
And before it was all about me. You know, I, I needed to be the first one to eat and uh, bake and weigh and dry their stuff after or whatever. And now it's setting myself aside and, uh, and making sure that my, my free mental energy is what can I do to make my life stay less stressful? What can I do to make sure my kids have what they need and that they're learning independence and, uh, and that I'm present for them? You know, the other thing is I have picked up a New Year's resolution, but I, I've become mildly obsessed with archery. Okay. And I've been wanting to shoot a bow for years, and I decided, you know, one-year anniversary sobriety, new year, I'm going to do that. Sure. Uh, so a lot of my mental energy now is focused on that obsession, whether that's listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, uh, anything I can do to, to learn and learn more about archery hunting and shooting a bow. But it's, you know, I have, I have a difficult time with a, I can kind of set that board in mind. But now I just have the ability to understand when that's happening and what I can do. I know what I can do about it. Mm-hmm. But I can go on to maybe some daily prayer or self-talk. Maybe I can watch a video on archery and I can see if there's something my wife needs done around the house. And just get outside of my own head and do something for somebody else. That's really how I'm able to repurpose that energy. Do you see... Is it? And admittedly, I don't know much about the 12 steps. All I've really, my only exposure has been in talking to my own father about this, and he's an alcoholic and has been sort of uh, more or less committed at various stages of his life, but has certainly done the 12 steps. You know, he's pretty rote at them, I guess. So, do you think that a big component of people's recovery is getting back into helping other addicts? Absolutely, and it, because the majority of folks that uh, are alcoholics or in active addiction or even recovered or in recovery uh, had always been, I think, very selfish and self-centered and felt they had a lot of control. And when you get to that point of understanding that you can't control, there's very little you can control. Uh, you can control your attitude, you can control how you respond, you can control those things, but you can't control what other people are going to do, say, think, feel. Um, and again, that gives you a lot of free mental energy to do productive things. But what happens when you when you help others or give back, whether that's volunteering at your kid's school, doing the run club that you've talked about doing with your kid's school, uh, or you know, having a phone call with another person in recovery, what you're doing is, and even me doing this with you, is hopefully giving back to something else and just getting outside of your own head and your own destructive thoughts uh, and understanding that you have a, a little bigger purpose. Um, you know, growing up, it's the same idea with, you know, the 12th step of the whole process is being of service to others. Mm-hmm. You know, carrying the message to other people still struggling. Well, what they don't really say, and that's kind of the beautiful part about the AA program, it's like a, it's like a fitted suit. Everyone's suit's going to be different. Everyone's program's going to be different based on what works. You know, the way I grew up with prayer was always asking for something. Uh, you know, in the, in the Catholic way, you know, pray for this, pray for that. And now, I, when I pray, I do pray for others, right? And what that does for me is it just gets me outside of my own head and gets me thinking about other people. Uh, and when I'm outside of my own head and trying to give service to others, it's much more rewarding for me. But I think it just gives you that, that clear head and 
that benefit of, of helping someone else is a really good feeling that mm-hmm. you might have keep coming back. But yeah, I do think that's a, a long answer to your question. Yeah, being a service. Oh no, I'm good. Sorry. Kind of going back a little bit, but are your parents drinkers still? They are. Um, what do they think of your recovery? I think they were. They're very supportive. Yeah. Uh, my mom is very supportive, like vocally, and she's kind of funny. You know, the first few times we spent time together, uh, you know, she wouldn't. She wasn't going to drink. and Didn't order a cocktail at uh, a banquet. And, like you realize, I don't have a problem with your drinking. Sure. Have a problem with my drinking. Okay. Um, and you're actually making me feel comfortable by right. changing, changing your behavior. Your behavior right. doesn't mean, you know. And uh, I remember telling my dad, we got to get rid of all the booze in the refrigerator down in in the shop. And I'm like, you know, it's not like I was this raging fiend. Where right. If I saw a beer, I was gonna jump all over right. it. You could control yourself. Yeah. Right. Um, they're supportive. I think it's. I do think it's, uh, and this is just hasn't been talked about or said, I do think it's caused some reflectiveness with some of my family members to maybe take a look at themselves a sure. little bit. Um, but yeah, they're supportive. They, you know, they, they get it. Uh, yeah. I, again, my family doesn't talk about much, so I bring stuff to the table and, and let them know where I'm at and how I feel. And, uh, but yeah, it's not, we don't have all of the conversations. They take it or leave it? Kind of? Yeah. Um, what's next for you? That's a big question. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole one day at a time thing. You know, I, what it, where I start to have those mental issues when I start thinking too far down the road. Uh, if I start thinking about, geez, I'm not going to be able to have a beer when I'm on a golf course and I'm tired. You know, or if I'm at an AA meeting and I see someone, this happened yesterday. Witnessed a guy that I really respected his 25 year medallion for sobriety, and it creates a lot of anxiety. How, how is that even possible? Right. You know, I feel like I've been sober forever and it's been 13 months. Yeah. So I start thinking long term about what's next. That goes take me to the wrong place. I get super nervous. I sure. The whole one day at a time, let's focus on what's important today. Yeah, you can plan for the week and plan for the weekend and do those sure. things, but. Uh, Without expectations of how things are going to go, I, you know, just absolutely loving being involved in present with my kids, being a friend to my wife, being open and honest and more about being human again. Yeah. For like the first time since I was probably five. I don't know. I, in terms of what's next, uh, have you had any major like scares or like times where you know? Because I think about it. I was thinking about it recently. So I, you know, I stopped drinking, and that was fine, and uh, it, it absolutely helps stabilize your mental condition, absolutely. And then I was thinking about why did I make the decision to, to uh, start smoking pot again, and part of it was probably just intellectual masturbation thinking I got it all figured out and oh this will this will be a creative catalyst and all this different stuff but I part of it too was it wasn't like immediately afterwards but uh, a couple of years ago uh, it was shortly after Kara's mom died and I remember you know I was sober at that time 
completely sober when she died. But I remember even just like this you know, feeling like, how do I, you know, you want to get numb when something bad happens. You know, you're like, how do I change the way I feel? And I didn't, uh, I actually went and, you know, I never, well, I chewed like some in college or whatever, just but like, I went and bought some chew the night she died and my wife was going to stay at uh, her, her mom, you know, her mom and dad's house. I was going to be home and I was like, well, I certainly know I'm not going to drink again, but I went and got like some chew and had one chew and I was like, I feel sick to my stomach and just threw it away. I was like, that was dumb. <laughs> but like, you know, that, that. How do I just feel something different than this? And it took a couple months, but it was within you know, a month and a half or two months of her dying that I decided to smoke pot again. And then pretty quickly that was kind of the coping mechanism. You know? It's like, good day? Hey, let's celebrate. Bad day? Hey, let's forget about it all. So. In terms of major scares, you know, it, it obviously put a lot of stress. Uh, our marriage, uh, you know, the whole, can I trust this person again, uh, I know he loves our kids, but can he be there for them, is he going to be sober when he picks them up, uh, you know, the, the big scare for me was, initially, who am I getting sober for, uh, am I just getting sober for them, because if that's the case, it's not going to last, right. Because I'll come back to my selfish ways. And there was a turning point, and I couldn't exactly tell you one more now. It was like, no, I'm pretty sober for myself. So, regardless of the direction our marriage goes, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be able to stay sober. I still think if that was the case, it'd be very challenging. Um, I don't know how I would deal with that emotionally. I'd probably have to call a lot of people and have people around me to be supportive. But that's a major scare. You know, it's interesting, and that's a big part about treatment and recovery, just giving these mental tools on how to deal with some of this stuff, and having feelings, actually feeling the feelings, whether they're good or bad, and just being able to acknowledge, wow, I'm having feelings, and embracing that. And this is you know, an opportunity to get stronger. This is an opportunity to maybe not get too high on life and just keep things in your house. Again, it's just that awareness of what's going on and how to deal with it, how to address it, what can I take from this that's positive? You know, what's, is there a silver lining in this game? And you'd be surprised on what you can pull out of silver linings. I mean, they may be very thin, right. but it, again, it's just switching your, your mental mindset to, you know, to be able to handle some of these more difficult times. So that's... That's all I have to say. Sure. Do you think, uh, you know, you said you're getting into archery, and I think that's, you know, as I've been kind of fascinated with this idea of this podcast and talking to addicts about channeling their energies into something more productive, you know, I've talked to a few other people, and it certainly seems like a, a fundamental component of the addictive personality is turn that energy somewhere else and a thousand miles an hour at that. So, do you, yeah. do you, th- I mean, that sounds like that's archery for you, at least at the moment, but do you have any recommendations for people, if, you know, things to do or not to do? Or what's can, been as successful long as it's, for you? As long as it's healthy, I mean, really, uh, I mean, you can be addicted to anything, 
Sure. Uh, you can be addicted to picking up paper clips. You can be addicted to, you know, there's people that are addicted to running in an unhealthy way. As long as you're, whatever you're doing is healthy and you're open and honest about what you need and, and doing that, you know, another part of my anxiety was that rejection piece. So, uh, and I'll get to that where this actually makes sense now with archery. You know, forever, if I had a golf tournament, and I knew I really wanted to do it, but I was afraid of what my wife would say. Uh, I may wait to the last minute to ask her or uh, just tell her I'm going to do it without asking. And instead, now I say, hey, I really would like to do this. Can you just, I know it sounds silly, but can you just say, yes, it's okay. You should go do that just to remove my anxiety. Because if I didn't do that, then I was building up these resentments about she doesn't want me here, she's going to mad when I get home late, without ever having a conversation about mm-hmm. So now, if I want to go shoot, knowing that it doesn't take that long, I'm very, and obviously flexible to say, hey, I'd like to go do this at such and such time now, does that work? If not, where can we fit in? So, I mean, obviously my wife's been very supportive of anything healthy right. I need to do as long as I'm open and honest about right. what I'm doing and why. Sure. But yeah, I mean, you know, some people will get really, a lot of people get into running and into working out and exercising and channeling it that way. And every therapist, every program in terms of recovery, you talk about any exercise and self-care into your, into your routine. Um, since everyone's telling you to do that, I haven't grasped onto that, uh, that part yet. Uh, it's like the one thing I'm holding on to. Uh, eventually, I'll, I'll get back to it. It's been archery, it's been the outdoors, it's been doing stuff with my kids outside. Sure. You know, going for walks in the woods or... Getting them involved with archery, about them both goals and shooting with them. Cool. Yeah, if you can incorporate something healthy that you don't get addicted to, that doesn't pull you away from time for family, sure. that type of thing. Well, this is sort of a ancillary thought to the general theme of the discussion, but I've thought for a while about this idea and was talking with another friend of mine recently about it, but like, the idea that, you know, you have to have what is yours, you know, I mean, you're a father of three, I'm a father of three, the, I have plenty of ambition professionally, but my role here on this earth is as a father and a, a good one and to create and help grow these good, empathetic, contributing, independent people into great, you know, members of society and, uh, like I said, I want to accomplish plenty professionally, but the, you know, I'm very aware that that's my job. But there's also the things that make me feel, I want to say like life worth living. That sounds a little dramatic, but you know, things that are yours. And you have, you know, the people use the cliche about when the oxygen mask drops and you got you to put yours on first rather than you know, the kids or whatever they say on the flight. That's real, you know, you got to have your stuff that makes you feel whole so that you're not at home just feeling resentful or feeling that you're just this tool there to, you know, which we are, I mean, we have to, we have to contribute to a family and it's bananas making a family, you know, schedule run smoothly and, you know, I don't know your woman, but I'm sure she does an amazing job because I know what my wife has to do to, or how much of the slack she carries. But I've always just kind of said, in order for me to be all in when I'm there, I got to have a few times a week where I'm doing this on my own, 
so that when I am home, I'm not thinking about all the stuff I want to be away doing. That's important. It's super important. And again, back to that, just being able to be vulnerable enough to voice with my wife what I need and how can we incorporate that, but also being open to, yeah, that's maybe not a great time. And, but also letting my wife know what's important to me, and then she supports that and respects that. Sure. Um, I'm fortunate enough, kind of like you are, that our days can be flexible. Right? So I can go shoot archery for a half hour to an hour a couple days a week. It doesn't impact my family's schedule at all. Right. Uh, you know, when the weekends come up and I want to go hang out with my dad or do something outside, I'm pretty vocal um, in a nice way, so I really like to do this. Yeah. But just getting comfortable asking for what you need and asking for help when you need it is something I was never very good at. Um, but also at the same time, supporting my wife. You know, when she wants to work out or when she wants to have a girl's night or whatever, instead of resenting that, I'm saying that she needs that now way too. And, right. and that gives me an opportunity to, to spend time with the kids and I don't be recharged. And it is definitely a give and take. You know, of course. And I would expect her to be supportive when I need things. It's not interfering with the bigger picture. Sure. But in terms of what you need, too, I think when you're open to voicing what you need and you can show your children that, that obviously dad's not selfish. He's here a lot. He helps a lot. He does a lot with us and for us. But he's also nice enough to ask when he wants to do something that he is independent. And you can incorporate you know, what those goals are, right? You know, if I, I tell my kids why I shoot, you know, here's what I want to accomplish. I want to be able to extend my hunting seasons. And quite frankly, uh, shooting archery for me is kind of a form of meditation mm-hmm. because the brain is clear and I'm focused on one thing. Yep. And giving them that insight into why these things are important. Working hard towards some goal, uh, being able to clear your mechanisms. You know, so even though I'm quote unquote doing something for me but I can also show them that it's right there's a benefit to there's it. a benefit to it. yeah that's absolutely real I was thinking about that because your thing is archery mine's jujitsu I've been doing that for about a year and it really is like um, you know people talk about a flow state or whatever and it is kind of meditation when I'm rolling around and grappling with somebody if I'm thinking about an appointment I have scheduled tomorrow or some work drama or whatever drama somebody starts choking me or smushing my face you just have to empty your mind and be in that moment and that's so rare in a, in a world where we just have information buzzing at us all the time that's what I get from it 100% correct just being able to focus your mental energy on one thing. And a big part of that for me is finally being able to be comfortable with who I am and really stop caring about what other people think of me. Mm-hmm. You know, if I would have started shooting a year ago, I'd probably be worried about what are the other people on the range think of my stance, my form, right. my equipment. And now it's just, I'm going to go, I'm doing this, right. whatever. Yeah. I wonder if part of that is sobriety and part of it is age probably a combination so i feel like we're getting we're getting to almost late 30s now it's you know no, I, I just, I just crossed i'm definitely late 30s. Yeah. 37 right 37. Yeah, i'll be 37 next week so, so. All right. I'm, I'm trying to hang on and say that's the last year <laughs> of the mid 30s but i want anything else you're thinking of or that you think would be helpful for people you know 
I don't know if anything else would be helpful other than you know, people know other, other people that need help or if they think they need help. Your life won't be ruined if you make a change. You know, your friends won't leave you, your family won't leave you, all these kind of weird things you have in your head about uh, grieving your potential old lifestyle. For me, anyway, none of that happened. My friends stuck around, they're supportive. It's, it's been transformational. I'm very grateful for the support I've been given uh, for being in recovery. Uh, it's not easy. Obviously, we didn't talk about a lot of the hard, difficult times. And, uh, and it is a struggle, but it's, at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure we weren't put, put on this planet to be destructive. So channeling that into helping others and being a constructive citizen is why I'm here. Regardless of who your creator is or whatever, it's, um, we're not here to destroy others. Including ourselves. Including ourselves. Yeah. Right, I'm in. Well, thanks very much, dude. Thank you. And thanks again for listening, uh, people. If you think there's anything uh, of any value in there, uh, please feel free to share this with anyone you think might benefit and certainly leave me feedback or let me know your thoughts. I'd love to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in this to learn uh, something too, for sure. So I'm still trying to get this all figured out in my head. So uh, if you think of anything that I should know, please let me know. And thanks again for listening. Take care.